Hello, and welcome to the Homemade Camera Podcast. We have a super special guest today, somebody I've been very curious about for a very long time and know very little about. And so uh, for most of this introduction, we're going to let Graham Houghton uh, do a little bit of introducing himself. Um, if you are on Instagram or the Homemade Camera uh, Facebook page, you probably know him as Chicken Thumbs. Um, I got really interested in Graham's work a number of years ago because he shoots a lot of pinhole pictures that are super dreamy and beautiful of lower Manhattan where I spent a lot of my adolescence. And so those are the pictures I think about when I think about my memories and dreams. And I'm really excited to have him here and learn a little bit about more about him. Right before we started the podcast, I found out that Graham is a professional industrial designer, which I am dying to ask him questions about. So Graham, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Uh, it's great to be here. Uh, thanks for reaching out. Um, I have been a listener for a long time, and um, I admit that some of the content you guys churn out, I listen to with enthusiasm, but a lot of it does pass over my head. Uh, so I'd love to learn more from from uh, from you guys as well. Um, so, Graham. Uh, before we get started talking about cameras and such, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? You, uh, we, we found out, are a um, Montreal hockey fan, I believe, or some other sorts of sports ball. You're an industrial <laughs> designer. You live in New York. You take wonderful Ethan, pictures. Ethan, that is and you so build cameras. smooth. <laughs> I'm trying. Yeah. I learned a thing or two from Gutterman last That's, week. Um, there, there we go. <laughs> Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Tell us. Tell us about yourself. Um, tell us uh, uh, about uh, how you got where you are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I uh, I live in Manhattan, uh, Lower Manhattan. Um, it's a very varied place, very interesting place to look at. So there's lots of subject matter here. Um, I moved to New York about 12 years ago uh, from Toronto, where I grew up. Uh, so. Uh, uh, being much more of a kind of a Montreal uh, sports fan is a, is a bit of a of an oddity, but um, uh, yeah, um, I studied industrial design. Uh, I've been practicing since 2000, um, and I work uh, at a at a consultancy here in in New York. What was your uh, first introduction to photography? as something that you uh something that you completed yourself um uh how did you how did you get into uh shooting uh not necessarily with film but shooting at all right well um my uh my father was uh really into shooting um and then also uh creating slides um so he did a lot of really macro close-up natural photography so I grew up around SLRs and, and uh, people who care about composing a shot and um, doing photography. And then subsequently, my stepfather was also a huge uh, photography nut. Um, and we went out shooting and then we would uh, wind our own film and then we had a dark room in the basement. So it was around. Um, uh, then I, I lost track of it. Um, and I didn't take photography in high school or art college, which is a bit of an oddity, and came back to it much later. But um, I was exposed at a young age to uh, to cameras, and I had um, uh, two 
ancient Minoltas that uh, I kind of grew up with. And uh, one of the things that I I love about your your Instagram feed uh, I is the use of the pinhole camera. How did you get to the pinhole camera? How did you get to um, that? It, you have a lot of very what I would consider otherworldly uh, images. Um, and and how how did that develop? Well, uh, all of that happened really by accident. Um, I had um, some old, um, like, um, Holga stuff kicking around the apartment, and I bought some film. And I bought some 110 film, and I wasn't going to use it, so I gave it to uh, a coworker of mine in the office, another industrial designer, who's really into photography, does beautiful work. Um, I gave him the film, like, hey, do you want to use this film? It's a little you know, funky to use, but it could give you some fun results because he likes artifacts in his work. Um, and then he, he looked at it, he's like, oh, that won't fit. And then I just, out of nowhere, not thinking about it, it's like, well, why don't you just 3D print a weird 3D, uh, a pinhole camera that will give you some strange effects. Like you could play with um, like a curved film plane or something. And I did, I, it just came out of my mouth without thinking about it. And I'd never thought about it before. <laughs> And then I thought to myself a few seconds later, I'm like, well, I'm going to do that. Um, so that's how it all started. It was a suggestion to somebody else. <laughs> that's, uh, I, I, that I want to back it often... up a little bit. Okay. So, Graham, you, you've been, uh, you beat me to the punch with all of these photography questions, but I'm, I'm really uh, excited about this, and we're going to get way into photography, but... Um, Graham, what are the other types of things that you design? I mean, you, you're clearly, a, you showed us some uh, Skype video of sculptures on your windowsill that were amazing. Um, I assume that you design functional products. Um, of the things that you can talk about, at least, what, what types of things do you like to make besides cameras? Well, um, my career has been really, uh, had a lot of variety in it, which I've been thankful for, because I, I do like to do a lot of different things to keep things fresh. Um, right out of college, I did exhibit design, um, so that was fun, uh, doing museums and, and, um, and things like that. Uh, then I moved to designing office furniture, which was great technically, but, um, you know, injection-molded nylon looks like injection-molded nylon, so... Visually, at times, it could be a bit dull. Um, then I did medical equipment. Now I'm into structural packaging, so lots of shampoo bottles and perfume bottles and that sort of thing, which I also still do sort of retail environment design as well. Um, so a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff. Um, a lot of the um, packaging from deodorant to shampoo to body wash that you'd find in Target, I was a part of. That's amazing. Uh, are we ever going to see a, let's say, Axe body spray pinhole camera? No. Not <laughs> Maybe not body <laughs> spray, but perhaps shampoo. Yeah, I, I never thought. I, I, maybe I just I subconsciously wanted to keep those two worlds separate. Um, but yeah, that'd be that'd be fun. I mean, I think there must be something cathartic about poking a hole in one of those pieces of, of, uh, of those packaging so I could almost, uh, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Voodoo shampoo. 
Exactly. That's where my mind was going. Yeah. I was thinking more like um, right guard extreme cameras. Oh, that's fun. I like that. I think it's really interesting because so much of what we do when we're building, um, you know, spe- specifically, I think it, very much in the pinhole camera world, uh, what we do, we're building cameras out of things that show up in our house uh, for other purposes. I mean, uh, you know, let's go right back to that oatmeal camera uh, or oatmeal container, you know, uh, pinhole camera that that was so classic. Um, you know, I'll put it. I just dumped a bunch of, uh, you know, a can of uh steel cut oats into the thing that i keep in into the dispenser i keep in my my freezer and i looked at that can yesterday and i thought i need to make a you know, put throw it in the trash you know it was one of those things of i if if i looked at every container that i ever yeah or let me say say it a little bit differently if i saved every container that i wanted to make a pinhole camera out of um, I would be overrun and um, I would be single, too, because my wife would kick me out of the house with all of my containers. But the uh, so um, so it's kind of it, it's kind of interesting that that is, um, you know, a, a part of your uh, part of your world there. Um, so do you do you ever look at what you're building and say, you know, professionally, I know you just said that you like to keep them separately or separate. But is there do you ever look at something and you go, oh, this could also be a camera, um, you know, especially if you're building, you know, stuff for liquids, you could. Hey, this would make a great um, self-developing you know, camera. Trails. Self-developing camera. There we go. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, anything that's sort of. Uh, uh, sorry, light tight with uh, with a good latch or easily opening. I'm thinking, yeah, that could be something. Yeah. Um, self developing. I'd love to do something like that. Um, like one of those cameras would just be really cool. It's a slippery slope though, because I can see not long from now there will be these injected injection molded products in the shape of cameras that. You know, people are buying shampoo in, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, there could be some really weird cross pollination there. Yeah, I mean, that gives me the idea of like maybe <clears throat> selling liquids that are photographic liquids. Let's say a developer in, in a container that could be turned into a pinhole camera, like like designed in the shape of a camera. Uh, it's when be- it's done. I feel like that would be a great marketing uh, thing. Maybe not. Not for me to do. I've, I've done well, a lot of screw threads, but no bottles. It's a lot better than recycling. I mean, if if you you know if when you're done with your shampoo, you end up with a Leica. I mean, that's good. I I, <laughs> I do have one one a little funny story about how the two worlds met. My last camera, I was working on a uh, a durable refillable package for deodorant. And uh, it had a really nice bayonet attachment on the uh, on the back uh, for the refill. And then I'm thinking, well, that would be great for attaching a film plane. So I took the CAD from that, scaled it up, and, and incorporated it into a camera design. Wow. It's already oh, happening. 
Yeah, it is. Part of the deal, the first thing that that I thought of when you when uh, when we went down this path was the idea of the the cloth that seed corn was um, uh, shipped in in the, like the 19 teens and 20s and 30s. Often had a pattern. Well, it was yeah. It had a had a you know it was it had a pattern with the idea that you were going to take this cloth and make it into a dress or a shirt or whatever, Um, and that was part of the sale. That was part of you know the the potential reuse. So um, so yeah, um, uh, Tetanol and um, Unicolor, come on, pay attention to what's going on out there. It makes me think of a box of Reese's Puffs that I brought bought recently that you could cut the back of the box off and make actual reality glasses. <laughs> I was really into that. <laughs> oh, that's fun. So, so yeah, they weren't virtual reality reality glasses. They were no, they were just big cardboard glasses in in the same orange as the Reese's Puffs box. I'm an wow. adult. I eat breakfast cereals. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. And those are glasses that Chad might wear. Yeah. <laughs> Chad um, will work. Go ahead. Graham, when you're designing things like deodorant packaging, there seems like, um, I don't know, when I when I think of sort of uh, not rollerball deodorant, but um, sort of the, the dry stuff, I don't know, the industry term where you screw the bottom and it, it pushes the stick up, I guess stick deodorant. Um, yeah. do, you, do you design like all of the internal uh, mechanism for that? Uh. Often no, because a lot of that stuff uh, they they always chase what they refer to as scale. So that's reusing a lot of parts they already have tooling for. So um, a lot of that internal mechanism is referred to the engine. So that's sort of kept standard uh, to save cost and and complexity. Um, so usually it's just uh, just the outside is what uh, we're typically involved with. So maybe maybe before we get to cameras, uh, this this reminds me of something that I've been, I don't know, angry about, but curious about and and frustrated with often is like there's this idea of um, masculine versus feminine design. Have you uh, come across the, these ideas? Yeah, yeah. Th- there are certain like tropes or shortcuts that people fall into if they're that are just quicker and easier just to fall into than rather than thinking about the problem. I think a lot of those um, characterizations are, are starting to die, uh, especially with a lot of new disruptive brands in the marketplace that, that uh, thankfully I think we're questioning a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I think of it often in terms of like cars. Um, I think of it as from like an engineering and um, industrial manufacturing standpoint, like, when you look at cars from the, let's say, 70s, they're very like boxy and masculine with square corners. But, you know, I don't and and like cars from the 90s start becoming bubbly and round like my old 1998 Toyota Avalon, whatever it was, you know, it was ever, no, no hard corners on the thing. And I think of it less as like, um, you know, design trends and cues so much as, you know, in the 70s, they were bending sheet metal, which lends itself to boxes and in the 90s they were injection molding things where if you have you know straight edges and 
hard corners, it's hard to pop out of a mold. And so things just naturally led to sort of more rounded designs. Um, Also a little bit more aerodynamic. I wonder, you know, how much of that um, plays a role in, in what you do in terms of, you know, making something that you know will pop out of a mold versus um, making something that looks extreme because it has chamfers or or soft because it has fillets. Um, yeah, I, I, I wonder like how much of what you do is sort of dictated by manufacturing process versus um, being appealing to people. Oh, well, I mean... Um, the two things, you know, you have to reconcile, um, and that's different from project to project. Uh, as you said, a lot of the, the technology used to make things impact the way they look. Um, a lot of the, the technology used to design, thing, design things also does. Um, it's easier to describe a shape um, that's fairly regular and has single curvature planes and is nice and crispy like that 70s car when you've got a T-square and a set square to work with. But if you're working in a surface modeler, you've got a more degree of freedom. Um, and a lot of that's just sort of independent of the technical uh, constraints of the manufacturing process. So design tools, manufacturing tools give you your range of freedom. And then you're just trying to solve a problem for a particular consumer or brand or um, something that just feels current. Um, so you've got to kind of deal with all those those pressures. Uh, in a different way per for per project. On a similar line, uh, the difference between the stealth fighter and the stealth bomber, uh, the F-117 and the B-1, B-2 bomber was, they're both stealth designs, uh, but when they designed the uh, stealth fighter in the 70s uh, mm-hmm. with limited computer power, everything was faceted, um, and when they designed the B2 in the 80s, when they had more computing power, everything was smooth and, and flowing. Uh, I think that that's a kind of a, a, a similar approach. That's one of the things um, that, uh, as a graphic design instructor, uh, I argue with my students about why you start with a pencil on paper versus uh, hopping into Illustrator or Photoshop to get things done. Because when you are working on paper, you're working with what your mind produces versus when you are working in the technology, you are guided in subtle or not so subtle ways by your skill within that. um, Man, I wish that were I, I wish that were true. But I, I am so terrible with a pencil. Um, I feel like, you know, like Nick is very good with a pencil. <laughs> uh, I I feel so limited by it. I, I bet. And I've seen Graham's website. Practice. And, and practice, it has nothing to do with practice, photography and just practice. excellent drawings and illustrations. Graham, what's, what's your feeling on, um, you know, oh. pencil drawing versus computer drawing? Well, two points to make there. One is, is I agree with, with Graham that like the um, the medium you choose affects the thinking. 
their thinking is affected by the medium. Like it, it's it's really driven a lot by that. Also, it's a great filter that if you're using a really coarse medium like a pencil where you've got a few strokes to express an idea, if you can express it in a few strokes, maybe that idea is powerful enough to survive all the nuance and complexity that you'd layer on by using um, a medium down the design process like Illustrator. So it's almost like you draw a gesture or a caricature of your thought with pencil. And, and then that lets your mind know what's important when you move on to the more complex iterations. Just so. Okay. Uh, I think that that was uh, Nick jumping in there saying, yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. I just wish that I was way less limited yeah. with the pen. I practice. always start with the pencil. Practice, also practice, Ethan. Practice. So uh, you know what I think with when you get to that, uh, Ethan. I think what uh, Graham just said makes a lot of sense in in connecting with that because if you work a little bit more in a medium that uh, is a hands-on kind of thing I, I always talk about forging steel being a really great way to learn to draw but you could be bending wire or even doing woodwork or anything yeah. where you make a three-dimensional form uh, or yeah. paper mache for for gosh sakes the back and forth between physically making something and then drawing it teaches you much more about three-dimensional representation than you can get any other way i mean drafting kind of gets you part way there but perspective sort of throws a monkey wrench into that i think you're better off doing direct direct uh you know the equivalent of figure drawing but say with objects yeah the back and forth between making it and drawing it and then drawing it and then making it that translation speeds up the learning really fast it's something that i've noticed for sure like um for a little while when i was in college i lived on a sailboat because i'm an idiot um i thought i would save money <laughs> by owning a boat but um you know i knew nothing about boats and i bought this boat for five thousand dollars on eBay as my house, uh, and I had to read a like a textbook as I flew out to go get the thing um, because I knew nothing about sailing. I had been on a sunfish once for two hours, and then I noticed that at the end of all of this, I could draw a boat excellently, just doodling because I knew you know what the what the shape and the proportions were and what everything was doing, kind of like. Um, you know, like an art school kid learning the anatomy of a human, uh, but for boats and now maybe cars. And I'm pretty okay at drawing the cameras that I've designed because I know exactly what the proportions are. But, man, I, I wish I were better at it. So I've already probably mentioned this. I taught myself um, a traditional uh, naval architecture, uh, the drafting techniques and design techniques for that because I had the same obsession as you. Uh, and that's another great way to learn because you basically slice up three-dimensional objects into sections. Um, oh. And that's how the design takes place. And it's really, really a good way to get intimate with curves and, and you know, boat shapes. On the uh, naval architecture note, just as a, <laughs> we are diverging quite a bit, I have a recommend. I'm reading the, the, the Master Shipwright Secrets right now. Mm -hmm. it's, it's about uh, how in the 17th century shipwrights described three-dimensional curves uh, and surfaces. Um, yep. Highly what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. It's a well, a lot of time they work from half models a lot. Uh, so it's exactly what I was saying about going back and forth between making and drawing. Um, so if you make a wooden carving of a boat and then slice, 
slice of bread, that's essentially what a uh, traditional de uh, boat design drawing is. Yep. It's it's a really fun way to work. And and then there's another version of that, um, which is the traditional whole traditional skin kayak design. And that's another way to come to that same place. Um, because you're basically making a linear representation of a complex three-dimensional form with the uh, the ribs of the boat. So I, I want to know this. Graham, you clearly start off uh, with pen or pencil before you're, I don't know, if you're in um, Blender or SolidWorks or Rhino or something like that. Um, I find like, so I, I took, uh, you know, mechanical drafting in high school and I can draw orthographic and isometric projections perfectly with a ruler and an infinite, infinite amount of time. But I never go to that intermediate step. I sort of make sketches and then move, you know, instead of spending the time mechanical drafting with a pencil, I do it on a computer. Um, I wonder how far you take it before it winds up in, you know, uh, Illustrator or or a three-dimensional software? Um, does it depend on the project or, or your preferences or what's that look uh, like? Well, no, I'm usually um, the way it happens is I, I start with pencil, but it's not like I'm doing a Illustrator a illustration I want to frame or have anybody at all see. I mean, it's usually chicken scratch. It's usually pretty terrible. Um, just to get uh, kind of the parameters I want down um, so that when I'm in the weeds in SOLIDWORKS, I, I'm, I keep focused on what I want to achieve. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, yeah, I, 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 I go to 3D fast. Um, and then it's really just a tentative little schematic in, in pencil. I don't do a lot of design refinement for the cameras. Basically, I'm just trying to do something quite robust, something that's not going to fail. So I'm not taking a lot of risks. Um, and there's something I find very satisfying about leaving the form quite raw and a little um, like a prototype that's just a, like almost looks a little cobbled together. I'm finding that because I'm like my day job is pushing things aesthetically by a, a millimeter, leaving things a little clunky for the cameras is really satisfying. <laughs> I, I love that about your cameras. I mean, it's it's kind of like what where I was getting at with uh, this idea of like masculine versus feminine design. Um, I feel like I just design cameras that, you know, won't break, do what they're supposed to do and uh, can come off a printer really easily. Uh, yeah. And so... You know, the shapes I use tend to be more feminine because curves are better than angles on 3D printers, at least on your first layer. Um, and I, I think your cameras just they look like black boxes with sometimes more holes than you would expect uh, in a camera. But but like I would bet you could drop those off the second story of a building and they'd be fine. Yeah, yeah. I, and then, you know, subsequently, I mean, the first few cameras, the thing is broken or failed and then. I'd kind of uh, increase wall thicknesses here or uh, make shapes that just didn't have things cantilevering off the side. So just, yeah, I think working towards something that would survive a fall or what you'd normally expect from a fairly robust consumer product. Mm -hmm.
Graham, uh, what is a chicken thumb, and why are you chicken thumbs? Uh, a chicken thumb is a handle that you don't need to put numbers after. So it was... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay. Okay. So it's kind it, uh, of a, a, a random word generator result? No. It's a camerodactyl, if you will. Yeah. I, <laughs> it, it's it was, like it's uh, like tsunami poodle. Exactly. It was it was I was just dreaming up the most non sequitur absurdist thing I could, hoping I'd get it. Um Okay. And then, then I got it. So I really, I really, I've come to enjoy the thought of chicken thumbs. So it stuck, and I'm, I'm still happy with it. So, so it was a good sort of flash. And it's memorable. Um, you know, I, I started following you um, a long time ago on Instagram, and, um, and then I heard you, you were on Lensless. Uh, yes. podcast right about a year ago year a little bit more maybe yeah. um and and the um uh and it, it so yeah it, it was memorable before that and um of course the imagery was was memorable one of the one of the sets of imagery um and once again people uh you can go to instagram um and chicken thumbs the links in the show notes uh, you have a camera that shoots, uh, you know, that's essentially a cube that shoots not only a side of the cube that is opposite from the pinhole, but it shoots the sides as well. Um, how? Tell us, tell us about how that came about. Uh, oh. Tell us about about that type of thing, and you'll see it on his feed. They're either X's or crosses or plus symbols. Um, so uh, you'll definitely, these are memorable images. Yeah, well, um, again, uh, talking about the Lenses podcast, I do owe uh, Corey and Co. Uh, a, a huge debt. Um, they've been an inspiration, also helped me uh, with the like whole idea of using uh, X-ray film in conjunction with, with paper media. But how I got the idea for the five panel came from a brief description of uh, an artist who lives upstate New York that would fold his cameras or her cameras into shapes and then shoot and then unfold them again. Um, and that was something that was on the Lensless podcast they'd mentioned. And I'm like, hey, uh, that sounds neat. I wonder um, if I could build something like that. And then I thought, if I'm shooting on paper, it's got to be enclosed in a box. And then a box is a pretty simple and controllable shape, and it's easy enough shape that you could cut under under safe light. That's what I have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no point in having the six-sided cube, so let's do a five-sided cube and see what we get. Um, so I 3D printed basically a bucket with a lid and then a sliding shutter on top, um, and then cut sort of this cruciform shape that with squared lines that I could stick in that that box. Um, and about two years ago, almost exactly, I'd, I'd shot my first one. Um, and the biggest question I had was how much image I'd get up on the sidewalls. And the answer was a surprising amount. Um, I didn't think I'd get that much image going up the side panels. Um, and the, the, the distortion you get, especially if you're shooting like down into a 
Manhattan Canyon or up a... I got the idea for the five-panel uh, camera um, from uh, a passing reference on the Lensless podcast. Um, and so they mentioned an artist up uh, upstate um, that had folded their cameras um, to shoot scenes and then unfolded them and developed the, the result. So uh, really curious with, about that. And then I thought if I was shooting on paper, I'd need a housing. So um, I designed basically a, a bucket with a lid with the shutter in the top um, and then had uh, the folded paper kind of as a cruciform shape. Um, and, um, and, and was wondering how much of an image I'd get up on the sidewalls. Um, and uh, I got more of an image up those side panels than I thought. Um, so um, that's how it started. So, okay, so you get these, like, really distorted angles on, uh, on those sides. And how is it that, uh, or, or how do you see those as contributing to the actual image? Um, uh, how, you know, we're seeing, um, we're seeing something that is not what the eye can see. We're seeing something that is different from the way we normally see the world. And, you know, this is, that's one of the things that we can do in photography is we can capture the not, or, you know, a view that is different from the view that we can, um, you know, make with our memory and our own eyes. How do you see that those parts add to the, um, the, the imagery or yeah. the communication show, I should say. Well, I think that's the, the magical thing I find about pinhole photography is that it deviates so much from, from what you would see normally. Um, that's what I find the mystery of that uh, and the surrealism that you get is why I find the medium so uh, gratifying um, and really uh, keeps me inspired is that just that you do have something that you just can't really anticipate until you develop. I think that's why all of us kind of really love it. Um, I do love that sort of bending of reality and then also looking at um, things that you'd normally just pass by uh, in, a, in a way that really does sort of remind you of how dramatic a landscape you're in. So I, one of my favorite things about, about your work and why I started following you way before this podcasting and, and camera making business is that the neighborhood in which you live and, and shoot is one I, you know, I, I basically grew up in. And, you know, I don't want to look at Google Street View or, um, you know, uh, Sony A7R 5000 uh, super clear pictures of it unless something is, you know, amazing going on that I want to see. But, but sort of my memories of Chamber Street match like the, the sort of fuzzy texture and, and sort of... Um, I don't know, to be cliche, like an ethereal nature of, of your photos. It's, it is like uh, going back into my own dreams of my, my childhood and early adulthood. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I love that about it. Yeah, that's interesting. It, it's almost like the, the softening and simplification is sort of like memory 
um, the, yeah. the way the way you remember things with a lot of the details stripped away. Um, but there's an essential, you know, the stuff that sticks in your head is kind of what makes it through the pinhole and onto the film. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think all of the iconic imagery of this part of the city or the city is of that sort of like coal smoke choked 1920s to, I mean, you're just such an association with this landscape with that fidelity of, of image as well, uh, that it just sort of works in the imagination. This reminds me of something I, I was in London in the seventies and I went back in the nineties or two thousands and they had cleaned London and it's this incredible, beautiful, shiny marble encrusted place that I didn't recognize. But when I went back to Manhattan after they'd scrubbed the buildings, it pretty much looked exactly the same. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's such a variety of buildings down here and scale that you go from like, uh, like, uh, 700 foot monolith to like the little alley with the pedestrian bridge going over it um like the 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 scale and the the texture of like greenwich a little closer to uh uh, uh, canal street over in that end is just a very different almost um mid 19th century texture and then you've got the just the steel and glass, and it, it just, it, it, you'd never get bored. Yeah. That alley with the pedestrian bridge over it, by the way, was like one where, <clears throat> when I went to high school down there, they were advertising BMCC, Borough of Manhattan Community College, which was near my high school, um, and they had these posters all over with like, you know, a happy multicultural group in front of, uh, you know, in, in that alley in front of the bridge, and like that was a place I walked through a million times and it's like one of the photos that just sticks in my head it's uh <laughs> really nostalgic yes yeah. and and there's several layers to that there's the, you're talking about the visual and architectural layer but you're getting the, the like 50 languages through your ears and you're seeing every kind of face in the world as you walk and it's it's at all levels that variety yeah yeah and then uh, another one of the the most the, the fun things to shoot on a rainy day is the the smoke from the uh, the street vendors. So like the hot dog steam. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a, it's it's cool to capture. Hey Graham, do you have a favorite street food? Uh, I I I it's weird. Growing up, I I can short circuit my brain to trust street food in Toronto. <laughs> but have leap in New York, like so. I'm, I'm I can park all the things that are still valid and concerning about street food when I'm back in Toronto, but I, I I'm too sensible here. Mm. <laughs> uh, that's good that's, for you. That's that's probably good survival technique. Um, I there I wanted to ask um as I page through. Um, there is a a picture from the 4th of July. I assume that that is this past year. Um, that's like a panoramic, um, picture. It looks like it is, 
uh, a little bit wider than a two to one aspect. Um, is that taken with the camera that we see a little bit later on in your feed called the Janus one? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's a four by 10 image. Yep. Am I right? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's like a, um, so what I do is I take a, um, eight by 10 Fuji, uh, x-ray film, bisect okay. it, cut it in half. And that's what I use. So let, oh. let's, uh, let's do this that is always a fun thing to do. Um, can we go through like, um, the first camera you built? I, I don't know how many cameras you've built. It seems like a, a whole bunch, but can we, can we quickly go through the progression from the first camera you've built? to um, the last camera you built, and maybe in the next section we'll do uh, what you're working on next. Sure. And we're going to interrupt you midway a million times and ask questions about this camera. <laughs> okay. Well, that'll okay. stop me rambling. Nope. Cool. All right. Um, so the first, I, I did two cameras to start off with, um, and they were pretty much... Um, like rectangular prisms that sort of tapered to the um, uh, to the um, shutter, um, and they had just big sort of fat film backs. And um, one of them had was kind of mirrored, so it had um, one aperture looking at 20 degrees off. Uh, the other one, so it was almost like binocular visions, but sort of uh, pointing off in divergent directions. So that was one of the first ones, and then I made one that was just a, a single aperture looking forward, it was fairly standard. And Graham, um, sorry, these are all 3D printed, yes? Yeah, they're all 3D printed. And, so. and did you make any cameras before uh, you were 3D printing cameras, or, or this is sort of no, where I you just, start? Yeah, I just leapt right into 3D printing. Remember that was his original vision. Yeah, I I, I do remember. <laughs> it's excellent. Okay, sorry. So, um, with those two cameras, they had this uh, common film back, um, and then the film like plane that the that I would hold the photographic paper with because I'd shot, I bought a box just to try this whole pinhole photography thing out. I bought a box of uh, of multi grade like four by eight. And so that's what I was using to shoot. Um, and then I'd, I made a film holder uh, that was convex and one that was concave. And I made that modular so I could stick either one in either camera. So I could look at what a curved film plane would do to my image in both convex and concave formats. Huh. Now you're speaking next language of modular cameras. Yep. And and did that have a name? Uh, no, that those didn't have names. I was just I was just wondering whether or not I would get something that worked. So it was more of an experiment. Um, and then, if you can imagine taking a small Manhattan bathroom and turning it into a dark room, has kind of been my jam since. I I can not only imagine, I can remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things I I love about your cameras and the way they look aesthetically is they remind me of like Apple boxes and all of the um, film set equipment that comes off a grip truck, right? They're all black with 
sort of um, I don't want to say sloppy, but like uh, or or crude, but like spray paint uh, in in stencils that's you know not not perfect crisp lines is exactly what what you know a case full of lights would have looked like you know, coming off of a grip truck in my neighborhood for a Woody Allen movie. Yeah, it was kind of that grip truck roadie box aesthetic I was going with, especially with the the, the stencil numbers. Um, it quickly became apparent when you're having kind of multiple identical cameras to shoot uh, when you're out is that uh, you've got to identify them. Um, so yeah, using that, that kind of that sloppy grip aesthetic was a way of, of really doing things quickly, but kind of making the end result kind of visually satisfying. Yeah. So what what came next after the uh, dual curved plane? Well, actually, which did you prefer, or or did you use them for different situations in terms of convex versus concave film backs? Um, kind of, they use them for different reasons. The sort of anamorphic one with the two uh, apertures, I'd, I'd, I'd shut one down and use the convex film plane, which gave me kind of this funhouse mirror effect. Um, so there's an image of the Empire State Building that's almost got a, a waste to it. Um, in my feed that, that became kind of what I used that camera for because I really liked the effect. Uh, and then the other one, um, for some reason, my first camera shoots really crisp images, crisper than some of the second, the, the, the um, subsequent cameras. So when I want something close to what I'm looking at, I use that camera. I'm looking at this photo now. It's from June 1st, 2019. It's of a um, air tower, I think, on the uh, Lincoln Tunnel. That's uh, very, very crisp. Is, is that uh, from that original camera? Uh, no, that one actually came from the, the Janus 1 camera that we were talking about. And, and the Janus 1 came where in, oh, in wow. the line? Was that the next camera or that was 5 or 10 down the line? <laughs> it's embarrassing, but I think that was five or ten down the line. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, I love this this uh, picture of the air cooling tower or the the air exchange tower. I was almost arrested for photographing that once and uh, had an argument with a cop, telling really? him that yeah, I was on public property photographing something in plain view, and he had no right to harass me and could call DCPI. I had this argument uh, time and time again after September 11th in New York. Um, I was never arrested, but often threatened with arrest. And I often said, I'm on public property. I can see something in plain view. I have every right to photograph it. If you want to arrest me, go ahead. I will make $10,000, <laughs> which was the going rate for uh, uh, unreasonable arrests in New York at the time. Yes, but just the other day in Minneapolis, they arrested an entire CNN film crew. Yes, and then they released them, and then um, they will have to pay CNN. <laughs> Good. Right? They, there was there was a time in New York, I want to say around 2003, uh, where you know at the same time that they were running the campaign Cves Algo Dialgo, which is if you see something, say something on the trains. They were also trying to ban people from using cameras on the trains, um, and they were arresting people left and right for. Uh, taking photos in plain view on public property, which is well within our, you know, uh, First Amendment rights, and uh, the city was paying out ten to fifteen thousand dollar lawsuits left and right 
Um, and it was just sort of like the standard payment until they stopped doing it. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's a <laughs> memory lane photo from, from, uh, the West side of Manhattan for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, on that day, weirdly, um, I was completely alone. It was very still. It was, it was almost the, the mood that you, that, that, that the end result kind of captured. Um, it was it's kind of odd it was that empty. I had a morning rollerblading gym twice a week one semester where we would rollerblade up the West Side Highway and rollerblade past uh, the structure. And it was always like very calm and eerie. And it was just, you know, 30 kids on rollerblades, <laughs> nobody else at that hour. Um, it's, it's exactly how I remember it. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, um, there's certain parts that you get attached to, and I think that that view up those two kind of causeways to that tower is just, it's pretty cool. I always look at it. Yeah. So um, after your uh, dual curved film plane cameras, what what came next? What did you okay. did you find that you liked something about them that replicated itself into the next camera or? Um, was it a totally separate idea? Um, well, um, it's really interesting. The next camera kind of gets at a bit of an arc, and I think a lot of people go through it, is they try to chase size. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was kind of a maturing in a way, because I went like 8 by 10 and I made this box that's got a hinge out of wood and a, and a, and a big handle and a, and a baffle inside that I've made out of foam core. Um, and then a very slightly concave film plane in there to get 8 by an 8 by 10 images. And that was actually pretty good because it was very instructive at learning about when you've got too much vignette because my focal length was too short. Um, so then I, I kind of modified that camera with larger and larger longer and longer focal lengths so that i could get a reasonable uh image on on a full eight and a half by uh sorry eight by ten um and then when i was shooting paper my exposure times are just going through the roof so i didn't really start using that camera again until i used the more photosensitive uh x-ray film and now I use it fairly, fairly often because it, it, it's a good crisp camera, but it also is like close to an undistorted, just straight image as as a lot of the cameras that I have do. Um, do you use any um, any cameras that you didn't make? Uh, I use a Holga, but with a lens, and then I've got. Um, the old '50s camera that my uh, my my wife's family uh, kind of had. Uh, then I also went through a period where I was shooting um, some SX70 Polaroid stuff. Hey, what what 1950s camera? Is it a Kodak or a folding camera? Or I think it's an Argus. Is it a box shape? Is it a brick? Uh, no, it, it's a 35 millimeter. Um, it's got some a variety of lenses from wide angle to telephoto, but uh, it, it oh, yes. operates in a, in a way that I am completely unfamiliar with going from a traditional kind of 35 millimeter 
SLR, but it's 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 a pretty strange thing. Um, it's yeah, got so this sort of strange multi-lens viewfinder thing up top. It sounds pretty cool. Argus are not like anything else, so that sounds like a probable. Yeah, it's it's a pretty strange thing. Um, I haven't got anything out of it that I'm particularly proud of. Um, yeah, it but, sounds like an Argus, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so I was, I was curious about that same question, and I noticed you also have pretty pictures in your stream that were made by some sort of sophisticated lens camera. Is that a phone or just uh, a digital camera? Or? Um, I think uh, everything else on my feed, aside from pinhole, is just, just phone-based. Right. Well, it makes sense in the city. You can just stick it in your pocket. Yeah, yeah. Although I've been lusting after a Fuji X100V. Great yeah. camera. Great camera. I've been I've been dreaming about one of those recently. Yep. Yeah, we just need to wait till they uh, release the Fuji X100Z, and then the V will only be two hundred dollars. Uh, yeah. That's yeah. how I've that's how I've kept myself in Fujis now for about six years is always buying the the out of date ones because it, yeah. it's not a long wait. I mean, a couple couple of years and they go way way down in price. It's yeah. the trailing edge of technology. Uh, so it is, it is the cost that's that's holding me back on that one. So it's a good plan. So uh, back to homemade cameras, uh, Graham. You the the camera after. The curved camera was an 8x10 um, with a, um, sorry, you said a slightly curved film plane. Um, did that have a name? Uh, no, no, that one didn't have a name. I, I don't think I started naming them until um, just, I think it's just the, the Janus one, because it, 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 that one's an interesting story with the multi-aperture thing that we'll get into in a bit. But um, I think that the next one up, was right after when I went and I was still chasing size. I was wondering what would happen if I shot um, 11 by 17. Or no, it was, yeah. a, it was the, uh, not 11, 17, um, uh, 16, 16 by 20. By 20. Yeah. Even better. Yeah. So that's a giant box. Um, walking around lower Manhattan with a giant phone core black box with a plumbing handle on it. Uh, caused my wife some concern um yeah you don't look inconspicuous with a giant box that size um what well, and it says avid uh on the front am i right it yeah is a sticker it, on the front yeah i had some old like bike part stickers that i thought if i put some stickers <laughs> on it would look a little less dangerous i don't sure. think much have you uh, have you been harassed or, or at least stopped by the police a bunch of times? No, uh, weirdly enough, no. Um, uh, I, I, the the dog is really useful for looking disarming. Uh-huh. <laughs> so if I took the dog with me, nobody would suspect I was up to no good. So that helped. <laughs> um, so according to this, it has uh, it's three hundred fifty millimeter focal length. Um, and F eight seventy five. I'm guess <laughs> yeah. You're shooting on paper. So yep. did you build a shelter there next to next to the camera to 
to camp out for a week uh, for these types of pictures? Oh, that's the thing. Well, I mean, that's another thing that, that what it forces you to do is you really kind of, if you're sitting there taking exposure, you're kind of in a, in a, in a situation where you don't find yourself typically is being able to kind of just be forced to sit and observe a place, which is yeah. interesting. Um, like on a bright, sunny day, like it would still be a 20 minute exposure. Um, and then, uh, on a fairly, you know, bright overcast day, that's, that's 45 minutes. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, it, it was a challenge shooting that and a giant pain in the ass. Uh, <laughs> uh you, you got to suffer for your, um, the, uh, if we're, did, was this a tripod? Um, did you take a tripod with you for this? How did you isolate the movement on that? Um, or did you just set it down and shoot parallel to the ground or, or how are you, how are you working that? Well, that's another restriction that why that camera no longer is in use is that I'd have to do like location scouting. So I'd be walking around or shooting with the smaller cameras and find a place with a, a good ledge or an isolated spot where I could get a little higher up or mm -hmm. the shot would work with being on the ground. Um, because up on a tripod with a surface area that large made out of foam core, any gust of wind would right. have been a disaster. So. Oh, oh, wait, now hold on. You, you could do it like you do it with the camera. You could put a lead base in it. You know, <laughs> just put a put a, you know, make it really seem like there's something there. I <laughs> Am I imagining something, Graham, or um, did I see some photos of you with pinhole cameras mounted to the back of your bicycle? Yeah, yeah, I, I made some clamps. Actually, that was, uh, I think Corey from the Lenses podcast told me about that, um, and then I, I, went and, I went and tried that. It was really cool. Um, so I tried one kind of behind the handlebars and one attached to the, the, um, the seat stay in the back. Uh, and, and took a look at what I could get. Do you do you ride with a kickstand for tripod purposes, or do you just lock it to something and uh, try and lock it in a way that the bike won't jiggle around? Oh, uh, well, um, the, the shots that I did for that, I would be riding. So uh -huh. <laughs> uh, the only thing really be in focus would be the stationary parts of the bicycle, and everything else would be uh, kind of whizzing past in streaks. But you could you could put a model in a trailer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, I've a I've a dog uh, a trailer that uh, for my bicycle that has um, you know that's made for carrying pets. Yeah, and, you're gonna need a bigger camera. Uh, yes, how absolutely. About a, how about a, a sidecar would work well too, and then you'd you'd have a tripod all the time. Or how about a wheelbarrow? Um, <laughs> 32, yeah, there we go. 32 by 40 would be four sheets of 16 by 20. Okay, so but, okay, okay, so we're, we're getting we're getting more down the megalomania path. But I think, um, after the 16 by 20 that has the Avid sticker, and maybe this is uh, is that a Peugeot logo or some some uh. Ferrari logo, can't tell. Anyway, um, after the giant uh, foam core briefcase camera, 
I think they got smaller again, right? Yeah, yeah. After after that camera came the five panel ones. Um, my first five panel one actually used a, like a five inch by five inch by five inch squares for the five panels, so that it was cut out of a single sixteen by twenty. Um, and even that camera was just a bit too big to use. So I started doing the cubes um, that would cut that cruciform shade out of an eight by ten. Um, and those are manageable because I could stick three of them in a backpack and go out versus this giant like bucket that I'd have to carry around. Um, yeah, then I, I went back to shooting kind of a, a four by five uh, X-ray with sort of the more box cameras, and I've pretty much stayed that scale since. Sorry, four by five X-ray, as in you're shooting on X-ray film? Yeah. Awesome. So it's a piece of four by five film, and then you cut that cruciform shape and fold it into a, a handy little box, and you could carry a whole bunch of those. Yeah, yeah. The the, the box cameras I should still shoot paper because um, I can't get that form to fit the inside of the camera in X-ray film. The the uh, hard the, to fold. Yeah, that it didn't. It doesn't really want to lay flat, and that's one of the limitations. Like you, um, for. The X-ray film, I would never be able to get a contact print of one. You might be able to design a little uh, um, frame, like a wire frame that you could force in there that would sort of trap it in place. Yeah, yeah, I've been thinking about that. It, it just creases it to, to that make sure like it, it um, when it yeah, comes out, it, it just not it just doesn't want to lay flat ever again. Uh huh. I see. I have cut those squares out individually and put them on the surfaces to, to get that effect so that I've right. essentially just got five flat sheets, which works, um, but it's a bit fussier. Are you using a single or double-sided x-ray film? Uh, double. Um, I just shoot, I just, just buy what's cheap that I can get, like a, a box for 20 bucks. Have you tried cutting strips of 35 millimeter to make your little shapes? No, I have not. That sounds interesting. You could get into some more exotic emulsions that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have some old film that's about or past its its prime. I could probably try that out. That's an interesting idea. I'm going to give that a whirl. All right. And, and so I take it you're not reloading these in the field in like a, a dark bag. You're just printing a bunch of cameras and shooting them each once and bringing them back to the bathroom darkroom? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's why doing the small cameras is good because if if you can stuff six cameras in a backpack and go out, I mean, that's that's viable. But you know, if, you're, if you've got, if you're headed out with one shot um, with a giant camera that's, you have to lug around. It's 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 sort of less fun for me. But, uh. <laughs> so a tip for using a dark bag in an urban setting is if you stick it inside a trash can, then you'll look normal as you're. <laughs> That's a great <laughs> idea. Yeah, I'd fit right in. <laughs> oh my god. I could, go, um, I could go myself a little bit too. Graham, are you usually on foot or on your bike? Um, kind of half and half. Uh, for for the neighborhood. Uh, if I want to shoot down here, I usually go by foot just because I can pass by the landscape slow enough to really find an opportunity. Um, but if I have something in mind and it's a little further afield, I, I hop on the bike.
Oh, I've scared him off. <laughs> so we can we could simply describe what we're seeing. Yeah. Yeah. It it looked to me like a uh, a, a big box camera okay. with a tape oh, on oh, the nose. Next stop. Nick, stop. We're not. Let's <laughs> let's come back in a little bit more orderly. Um, so. Uh, OK, this is something that you guys cannot see right now, but we can see uh, Graham is holding up a camera that he has built. It looks kind of like a travel wide or an OG, um, but it's got a, a pinhole, uh, a rotary uh, you want to describe that? What it, it's a rotary multi uh, adjustable pinhole device thingy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's um, I got it on eBay. It was kind of a uh, cable operated uh, pinhole shutter with multiple pinholes and a kind of a rotary. So it's a bit of a choose your own pinhole uh, size going from 0.2 up to I think 0.6. Um, so I can kind of stick a little screwdriver in the side and then move it to the size of pinhole I want. Okay. And so the other thing that's different about it is it looks like, is it set up for a five by eight? So half of an eight by 10. Uh, yep. Yep. So it, and it has this very cool slot that allows you to feed in the paper or film such that it will either bow in a convex or in a concave shape. So you have the option of either one uh, when you load the camera. Yep, uh, it's 3D printed um, film holder uh, that uh, you can slide in either convex or concave uh, film planes. Cool. And then it's, it looks like oh. a wooden a wooden body as well. So I like I like to see this hybrid use of different materials. That really appeals to me. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, almost uh, in any art store when you can get those sort of thicker wood panels for painting. Mm -hmm. um, that's what I've used as the back, and that's also how the my eight by ten camera is constructed using those panels. Uh, but they're but they're great. They're really sturdy. And then I put in some threaded inserts and made little camera mounts uh, for uh, putting the camera on a tripod, either portrait or landscape. It so like is this is this an easy uh, travelable uh, device? I mean, it looks it's it's big. I would say it's the it looks like because it is housing a little bit more than uh, what we would expect. It looks like it's about the size of an eight by ten camera. Uh, if you guys think of an eight by ten camera, is it an easily travelable one? Or I mean, to, you throw it in a backpack. You uh, how, how do you go out and shoot that? Yeah, this is, a, I've found, um, now that I've got a feel for it, is the maximum size I would tolerate to go out. Is it? It's it's a size where I could shove it in a backpack and take other cameras with me, too. Um, I don't think I'd ever go bigger than this again. Okay. Uh, and, that, and, and that, again, is it's uh, an 8 by 10 sheet cut in half. Um so it is eight by five. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Eight by five. yeah. okay. And uh, you're generally you're doing these things as one shots. So um, you talked a little bit earlier about scouting um, sites. Um, it, would this be one of those ones where you would scout the site ahead of time? 
Um, that's how it's played out, actually. That's how it's played out. Um, I usually, if for this camera and for the 8x10, I know exactly where I'm going to go and have a pretty good time, a pretty good idea about the time of day I want to hit to the weather. So it's pretty deliberate. Are you, okay. Uh, are you photographing like the same thing over and over? Uh, or, or do you, do you think that, um, you know, once, once you've got a shot you like of, of one thing, you know, it's, it's dead and done and you move on. Um, it's always like kind of the same neighborhood, which I love, but I haven't noticed too much of like the same exact subject. I, right now I'm, I'm a little worried about repeating myself and, and just because of especially just being sort of very isolated currently, I think we all are. Uh, I'm yeah. conscious of that. Um, my wife has suggested doing a series where I shoot the same subject with all the different cameras and really celebrating the variations um, in that subject matter through all those different um, devices, um, which would be kind of cool. Um, but I'm still kind of experimenting and seeing what works to the point where I kind of want to shoot different stuff. Yeah, and you'll be uh, able to, you'll be able to get out before terribly long. I mean, you you know, maybe another who knows, maybe another year. <laughs> we'll yeah. see. Can you? Um, I'm curious. Can you work from home, or do you have to go somewhere else? Um, I can work from home pretty effectively. I have since the middle of the month. Um, work's been crazy busy, so I haven't been able to really do much shooting. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm working from home. Like, uh, uh, so. Uh, uh, it's our, our apartment's turned into a mini design studio with uh, my wife's like <laughs> books, and we've got an, uh, a makeshift curved wall for some basic photography. And um, yeah, it, it looks like a little design studio has taken over our apartment. Do you have a printer at home? No, I don't. Um, uh, so I've been using the office machine uh, with the consent of my employer uh, for my 3D printing needs. Um, and that printer is uh, really, uh, really good. Um, it's better than sort of the, the consumer level things, which has been great. So as you were describing before about designing your parts to easily come off a 3D printer, which means you want to reduce the amount of support or scaffolding mm -hmm. that the printer makes to support the part during build. Um, our printer has a uh, support that you can dissolve in a bath. Awesome. So that opens up a lot of design possibilities. So they can yes. have these shapes that kind of come out and overhang or cantilever in space that usually would be all clogged up with that scaffolding. Wow, cool. Cool. Um, uh, just a quick question. I think I found the shutter that you're talking about. Did it come from Lithuania by yep. any yeah. chance? That's it. Okay. So, so there's a link in the show notes, and I will probably be ordering my own in a few <laughs> minutes. Because <laughs> this is this to me is the coolest thing in the world. I just wish um, it would go a little bit smaller. Um, I like the um, uh, for medium format. I like a, a 0.15 millimeter um, shot uh, a hole, um, but. Uh, but yeah, I, so it goes um, 0 0.25, 0 0.3, 0 0.35, 0 0.4, 0 0.45, 0 0.45, 0 0.45, 0 0.45, 0 0.45, 0 0.45, 0 0.45, 0 0.45, 0 0.45, 0 0.45, 0 0.45, 0 0.
point five and yeah and although and then it goes point five point six point seven point eight and it comes with a shutter uh cable uh cable release am i right yes it it says Um, uh, although the little button on the end i've had to glue in place because the uh tapping and threading on that was a little suspect but that's the only quality issue i ever had with it i mean it it, um it's done pretty well um but, uh, yeah, it's straight from Lithuania. Yeah, I, like, yeah. Cool. I really like having a, a proper shutter on a pinhole. I don't do much pinhole work, but the what I have is an old Ilex number three shutter that I can, um, you know, that works really well with a cable release. And you get the choice between time and bulb and, you know, I suppose even the slower shutter speeds. Um, it just it just takes away all that, you know, messing around with not jiggling the camera, which I think to me matters. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to really see the difference because I've had, I've got some sliding shutters and I've got little doors and then I've even got the one I'm, unfortunately nobody can see except for you guys, but it's kind of got a like a like a fall open. Ooh, I love it. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so let's kind of describe what he just showed us. Um, it's uh, it, it it's it looks a like a car lens. oil filter. It or, does. Right, or a pipe bomb. um with a tripod socket um and it uh and it falls it it kind of the shutter kind of falls open gravity pulls that am i that's the idea is that gravity pulls that yeah Yeah. okay like a pocket loop yeah yeah right like a pocket loop um okay um and it's round and so it takes a round negative am i right on that yeah a two and a half inch uh round negative okay and it has an amazing rear bayonet where the back comes off with just like what is that like a 20 degree turn sounds like it clicks yeah if that maybe maybe 10 15 that's beautiful i don't think you've put this on your uh, instagram yet huh uh yeah i missed that i think maybe one shot um Maybe not. Yeah, this is super cool. So that's how you yeah. load. That's oh, how you load. yeah, there is. Yeah, there's one here with three circle circular negatives, three circular yeah. images. Uh, there yeah. we go. So are you um, are you sitting there cutting those out with the scissors, or have you figured out a, a compass cutter? <laughs> well, the the compass cutter would give me a hole in the in the in the middle, which I wanted to avoid. So I got a, like one of those. Uh, you can get them at Staples, like a circle press. Uh-huh. So it's like a stapler that cuts out a round hole. Nice. Um, so I can get you get like six out of a sheet of uh, X-ray film, uh-huh. and it might makes a nice clean brown. Uh, uh, so, negative. so here's the question: Did you buy the cutter and make the camera to the size <laughs> of the? <laughs> you beat me to uh, it. Of, yeah. Uh, or or did you just happen to find the right size? Um, I had some experience with the circle cutters before and knew that I could get them up to like well above the size I wanted. So, um, when I was designing the camera, I, I picked two and a half inches cause I thought it'd be a pretty easy size to get a, a, a circle cutter. Uh, and then, um, but before I hit, before I really did the detailed design, I bought the circle cutter. Nice. 
So what is it about the round image? Um, you're, I mean, you're working with a cylinder, you've got a round image. What, what is it that, that draws you to that? Um, I, I was just interested because a, a lot of images, especially like in, in social media realm are round these days. And there's something about it that I wanted to at least play with uh, uh -huh. because I thought that if I did, if, if I had an end result that I would hang, it would be really cool if I had a grid of image dots. Like, so you'd do like a, like 20 images, sort of a four by 20 grid of images. Uh, okay. Right, and then well, fill, up, fill up a poster, yeah. Yeah, I thought that would be a really kind of cool way of looking at things. There's also something kind of um, like looking through the, like a, a monocle or a looking glass kind of uh, feel about it that was kind of interesting. Um, I went back. I did. I did see those pictures. They were very nice. Uh, but I also went super far back in your Instagram feed and noticed that you had been shooting kind of the same, uh, same, let's say, uh, orthographic view of a lot of classic cars. I think we're into a lot of the same sort of classic cars being like old diesel Mercedes um, convertibles, uh, five-point hubcaps, Porsches and Broncos. Um, I wonder if you, I, I assume you know who Burned and Hillebecker are. Um, they did all of these sort of like um, typographies of, I don't know, water towers and industrial design in Germany, um, sort of Bauhaus photography, right? I, I could see this as like a collection of uh, that sort of uh, orthographic view of classic cars over and over and over with with that camera. It's it's like nice and sharp and uh, pretty undistorted. Yeah, th that series is just me. There's so many. Uh, I'm industrial designers, so kind of really yeah. attracted to cars in particular because it's such a touchstone for for everybody. It elicits such an emotional response, especially sure. something old and rare. Um, and then I, I just thought of a way I really wanted to standardize how I was capturing those. So I just went with the same format so you could really just focus on what you're capturing. Um, and those are just like complete phone capture, me seeing them on the mm -hmm. street. Um, just because, I mean, uh, the design of a lot of those cars and of those eras kind of, speak to me a lot and kind of an aesthetic that I wanted to celebrate. Uh, but it's, it's, it's all phone photography. Do you think you might revisit some of that in, uh, in your pinhole work? Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to. Um, it, it, it's um, a lot of that's just luck stumbling into the street, mm -hmm. seeing one and a phone is a little bit more kind of easy to, to, to respond to that sort of thing than a pinhole. Um, I have been able to capture some really cool cars with with pinholes. Like one of my most popular images is of a as a it was by the Brooklyn Bridge. There's an old uh, semi beat up but loved '57 uh, Chevrolet uh, Bel Air um, that I caught the front of just because the the side wasn't suitable with the light to capture the pinhole. But I'd love to, but it's it, it's harder to to luck out that way. Um, up the street, um, kind of on Hudson, there's always this yellow uh, Cadillac Eldorado, and I'd love to, mm. to get that one day. It's reliably there, so 
one day I can I can get a pinhole of that, especially with like the Janus one, which is the the four by ten. I could get like that big long land yacht, nicely framed in a in an aspect ratio like that. So Graham, we've we've talked about the different things that you have built. What do you have on your plate for things that you want to build? What's in the process? What's what's churning in the back of your brain uh, about builds that you would like to make? Well, there's two things uh, really looking forward to doing. One is a, a one that's purpose built, very extreme anamorphic one. So I'm shooting. Um, on an extreme angle over a film plane and having a dedicated camera that does that. Um, kind of simultaneously trying to figure out what I'd want to shoot with that and what subject matter would be uh, most suited to doing that sort of thing. Um, the other thing that uh, I'm looking at doing is something I've read about, but I haven't really completely understood yet, where you take... Um, a very thin sheet of brass, like the kind we usually make our pinholes from. And instead of making a hole, you make a very thin slit, say a fraction of a millimeter, um, make one that's horizontal. And then on a second plane, you make one that's vertical. Um, and apparently the result is pretty wild. Um, so, and you could also rotate those uh, 45 degree to get uh, an X um with that same kind of, you know, uh, rather than just a cross, but an X. I played around a little bit with those, with the apertures when I was doing the lumen boxes. Uh, I had a bunch of different apertures, and they do produce some different types of imagery. Now, that was with a lensed camera versus a, um, you know, a pinhole camera. Um, but I I think the, the, the only issue would be is making the apertures to the right size, um, you know, and and a consistent uh, distance. Um, I wouldn't say that. Do you have a, a plan on that? No, that is an issue, though. Yes, you're right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, do you have a plan I mean, for doing that? Uh, that's really why I haven't done it quite yet, is I'm looking at ways of really controlling that line. Um, so I've been looking at doing a very fine like photo etch to get that line, or okay. I've been there's a friend of mine who has a water cutter, but I think that gives me too coarse a line. Um, so there's some manufacturing constraints to getting that sort of really dialed in. Hey um, Graham, can I can I throw this out there? Um, this sort of like dual slit interference pattern, um, let's say lens or filter. That we're talking about is a standard um, piece of equipment in um, in physics lab laser setups on laser tables. Um, mm-hmm. So the the first thing that I might suggest is taking a look at like Edmund Scientific uh, to see if they have um, pre-cut sort of uh, plates and or mounting blocks. Um, granted, you probably don't have a six thousand pound steel table with mounting bolt holes in it. 
Um, the other thing that I might suggest, I don't know how small you have to make it, but, um, yeah, got one. Um, uh, I have access to a laser cutter. I'm, I'm about to buy one. I also have a friend in Brooklyn who has a laser cutter, you know, making one cut in a slit. Um, if, if you can find material thin enough, that's cut cuttable with that wavelength. Um, I, I think I, or, or maybe I could get my friend David, uh, to happily cut some, cut some experimental lenses for you. Well, that'd be really cool. That's a very generous offer. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I'll look at Edmund Scientific and if, uh, they don't have anything that you can sort of pull off the shelf at a reasonable cost, I'll, I'll reach out. That's really interesting. Please do. So that my constraint is that my laser cut width is 0.3 millimeters. Um, and that's pretty much the only constraint. The other thing is I can't cut sheet brass necessarily unless it's super duper thin. Um, but any sort of, you know, acrylic or even like, I'm wondering if it's if a, like, how about aluminum? How about, how about the a, bottom of a Python? Cause so that would work. I have a suggestion. What if you have two blades, then you just bring them close together and glue mm, them in place. Like exacto blades. Fabricate it, in other words, yeah. instead of cutting yeah, it. Yeah, like that was that was the other thing. Is it was thinking about like if you, if if I made a camera housing, I could have a slot that would accept one level, and then almost like taking a shim and putting that between the next sheet that I would put on top, and then gluing that in place and then removing the shims. Yeah, I like right. that. I think also the the interslit distance between the first plate and the second plate would have a lot to do with the uh, diffraction patterns you wind up having, but that's just intuition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was wondering about that too. I was also as a, as a Mark II wondering if you uh, if you had those sheets like diverge in distance between the two, what would that do? Sure, and you could, and with you, the fabrication method would allow you to do things like have a tapered slit, and you know, all kinds of experiments. Yeah. So often when I'm building something, um, I'm building a scanner right now, and uh, you know, the physical device is really just a test bed and not a representation of the eventual, you know, retail product. And so the test bed allows me to, you know, make some adjustments that will be eventually dialed in and not adjustable in the retail product and it it also has a lot of like you know the the formalities of a case stripped away so there's just wires hanging out of it i wonder um you know you seem to be able to like just kind of nail everything on the on the first try from what i've seen (laughs) but um i i wonder how much of like test bed building you do for cameras you plan on throwing away uh, just to take what you've learned from such a thing and put it into that camera that you put on Instagram that makes excellent pictures. Uh, no, I mean there's there's still uh, adjustability. Like usually, I just make them sort of basic enough and with thick enough wall sections or parts that I can unbolt and and, and change that um, I can do all that adjustment and not be concerned about it being pretty. I think. Mm-hmm. Having that test mule that you don't really care about is key to developing something. So, like I've done like pinhole cameras, is looking at this one that uh, had very different focal lengths that that created an overlapping image. Um, I made that out of illustration board and tape 
went out and shot, it didn't work, I threw it out. Um, uh, or having that sort of level of adjustability to fine tune. My 8.5x10 camera, um, I had to cut that thing apart and rebuild it because I was getting crazy vignette. Uh, it's, it's key to have something you don't really care about cutting apart and putting mm -hmm. back together until you get it right. Yep. I can just see the crumpled cameras littering the floor of the shop. <laughs> yeah. Um, Graham, do you have any other types of cameras uh, in your mental dream camera journal? Uh, I had a brief thought of turning a, a, a... I have a friend who's a really talented designer who lives in the mountains of British Columbia um, with a big shop and lots of interesting CNC equipment. And we've been daydreaming about like turning a, uh, an old Econoline van into a giant camera and mm. then mm. driving <laughs> ass and doing a giant image uh, with the hole poked into the side of the van. Um, that's been a daydream. I have an E150 and my friend Joe is constantly trying to get me to put a lens on the side of it. And I am constantly telling Joe no, I need this for work. <laughs> I can't. I can't have just uh, developing tanks built into the floor. <laughs> you know, you can you can solve a lot of problems if you build this camera in the form of a trailer, and then you don't have to keep you know changing the oil on the camera, right? You can pull it with any vehicle. Yeah, then you have to register and insure your camera. <laughs> well, it's cheaper than registering insuring a van. Well, yeah, but I have to do that anyway. <laughs> now, now, now. Nick, trailers are very cheap where I am. I don't know what it's like. Yeah. I'm sure Manhattan, they're you know a pain in the ass, but yeah. bike trailer. Um, uh, Nick, you're arguing for a, a purpose-built, uh, single-use uh, object right there, and Ethan's arguing for the the multi-use. You guys are on the wrong side. Oh no no! The trailer, the trailer is a modular component. The trailer is a modular component that you can switch from vehicle to vehicle. I'm staying true to my my dream. But I actually, what I really want to build in a trailer is a darkroom because, you know, I need a small darkroom and maybe it would be great to have one I could take with me when I go south in the winter and that kind of thing. Okay. So uh, what what else, uh, anything else that you want to talk about? And if you want to keep them secret, you know, um, you know, industry secret uh, for anything that you want to build, um, anything else? Uh, I guess um, there's one thing I, I tend to neglect, and it would be interesting to talk to. I think many of the listeners might have the same issue, is that uh, um, I tend to lose a bit of steam when it comes to making prints. Uh-huh as I just want to see an image I've never seen before kind of materialize in a developing bath, that having the discipline to go back and do prints is hard, and then doing test trips, and then getting a good print out of, out of your work. Um, and right now I've been doing a lot of contact printing where mm -hmm. to varying levels of success, maintaining some detail that I'm getting in, in, in the negative. Um, so I guess if we could talk a bit about 
that end of things, right now I'm, I develop in a, in a bathroom and have a, a, a AFCA um, small contact print uh, frame and then an mm-hmm. eight and a half by, sorry, an eight by 10 um, uh, holder. Um, and then I've just you've been using very basic, like five watt light bulbs on a tripod with a timer um, to get my uh, yeah. my contact prints. Um, but and then I, I have problems with the usual problems with contrast and filters never seem to work for me. So I feel like really behind in that whole world. Sounds like your regular light source might be a bit of a, an issue, and a, 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 a good strong diffuse light source makes a difference. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I've been using just sort of like a nightlight. Yeah. No, that, that um, may be it, giving you a hot spot in the, in the uh, you know, in the light itself. Right. So, so what you want is between, yeah, underneath that um, nightlight is you want uh, either frosted glass or milk, uh, you know, or, you know, just white translucent plexi, something along those lines. Even paper. Um yeah, yeah, you, yeah. Depending on the, you don't want to send that hot spot through it. Um, so the paper can't be too thin, but then it can't be too thick. Right. You need a very uh, bright light if you're going to use paper, but it works. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, like, so uh, it's. I got frosted mylar to start with. And... Uh, no, you don't want frosting for contact printing okay. because the texture will show up uh, oh. unless you move it away from the thing and use another piece of glass. Um, same deal with papers. If you're using a paper as a diffuser, you know, it, it needs to be far away from the actual contact printing glass because of the texture of the paper fiber. Right. Uh, what I like to use is um, white acrylic. Um, if you have a shape uh, that you would like cut out of white acrylic, I would happily mail you one. I have an infinite supply of free scrap white acrylic. It's like, you know, when you look at an x-ray viewer box or like a light box, that's the material that they're using. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're using like two sheets, right? So there'll be the bulb, a small air gap, one sheet, and then another air gap, and then the final sheet. So it's very diffuse. Yes, to get very even light. That's the idea. Yeah, Yeah. like a good consistent... uh, panel of light without texture so have you ever have you messed around with scanning uh, or taking so if you had a digital camera with a macro lens you could get a very high resolution digital uh image of your film and then use that to print with a printer yeah yeah uh in terms of the the mix sort of uh pinhole to digital thing yeah I've, i've i've done that to get the images digitally to share uh, through social media. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, scanning, I've done a fair bit. Um, it gets trickier with how um, x-ray film comes out with the ref- reflectivity. If I'd even like negative settings go a little funny on that. Um, how, yeah. are you, how are you doing, how are you digitizing? Do you sit out on a light? some sort of a light pad and photograph it from above or what, what's your process? That's what I've been resorting to. Yeah. I have a, um, a light table, um, and then setting up, uh, um, an iPhone uh, on a tripod and, and capturing it that way. The light table is the best way I've found so far. 
Yeah, I don't think, I think the light, the iPhone is part of your problem. So if you had a proper camera with a macro lens, you could get in and take multiple shots and then stitch them together and get a really, really nice digitization. The other thing I find is I often turn off the room lights because they, if you have reflective film, the room lights can throw things off. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've, I've found that. And then I have like completely pitch black with uh, with the light table has, has produced the best results so far. Yeah. For sure. But yeah. Another well, anyway, for that, would make, yeah. that would automate the printing if you don't mind what digital prints look like. Um, and that can be some people don't like them. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. I find that I like them pretty well for black and white, though, for monochrome. Uh, with color, I have a I have a thing for film, and it's hard. Yeah, to, yeah. I could see that. Um, yeah, I, I think there are, there are cameras and formats that I'm shooting with that I'd prefer to stick with a completely chemical process, and somewhere I'm like have no problem with going digital, like. For the five panel, if if I got the detail that I could get through a mixed uh, process uh, by creating a scan and a digital print, I'd be I would be fine with that because the end result would be what I want. Yeah, I think it would be worth your while to pick up an out of date, cheap mirrorless camera and a and a old manual macro lens because you can you can take marvelous you know high resolution shots and stitch them together and especially with your irregular shape negatives uh, that would be a great way to do it. Great, that's another justification for a camera. <laughs> <laughs> right, but not the X100 because you you need to be able to put a macro lens on. Right. Uh, that's cool. Well, thanks for the tips. The, I'm going to give that a shot next time. We are recording this on June 1st of 2020. Um, at, at what's going on in our country right now, uh, the United States right now, is, and it's also, you know, kind of worldwide, is there are lots and lots of protests and uh, riots and uh, stuff that's going on uh, over um, uh, police brutality uh, in general. And... Um, and I think it's also uh, a lot of it has to do with what the world's going through with being on lockdown for four months. Um, but anyway, uh, one of the things that happened uh, in Chicago um, was that central camera in Chicago was uh, looted and then burned. And uh, it is... Um, one point, it is one tiny little speck in this world of unrest. And, uh, and I'm going to do a little bit of, of editorializing. Uh, I think that as long as anybody sees this as, um, that is an action of a them and we are in us and we are doing something different, um, we will not solve this problem. Um, this problem can only be addressed if we address this 
as we and us and things that we have to do uh, in order to solve problems that we have. Um, because otherwise, in 20 years, we're going to be watching this all again. Um, you know, there's nothing different about what's going on today uh, from, you know, the Watts riots and Rodney King and riots and all the other things that are going on. We have not addressed this. We have to address it. Um, uh, and we as a country need to address it. We as the world, we as people, we as humans uh, have to address it. So um, uh, one of the unfortunate results uh, of that um, action was the central camera in Chicago was, as I said, looted and burned. There is in our show notes a link to a uh, GoFundMe uh, for the rebuilding of that. And uh, I'm not saying that this is special and different from any other shop. Um, it's just, it is part of our community. It's part of our community because um, Johnny Sisson from Classic Lenses is an employee of that location. Um, uh, it is, uh, it's just a symbol. Um, but if you want to contribute to that, the GoFundMe will be in uh, our show notes. And if you uh, want to uh, find another action uh, to do on this, to bring a positive result to this, a pro positive end uh, to this action, um, we, uh, I fully support that. Uh, but that is up to you. You as an individual, you find your path through this. Um, so um, on another note, um, uh, Elsa Dorfman, who uh, was one of the famed uh, users of the 20 by 24 uh, Polaroid camera. Um, uh, she she leased one in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I believe it was in Cambridge uh, yep. in the Boston area. And uh, she has passed away. Uh, she died in, uh, in late May. I have a link to an article uh, on the Boston Globe about her life. Um, and, um, uh, it was not COVID related. Apparently it was, uh, 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 another health issue, but she passed away at the age of 83. Um, and, uh, on Netflix, or at least in the past, it has been, if you type in Elsa Dorfman spelled just the way it sounds, uh, you can see a little documentary about how she, in particular, use that incredible piece of technology. It's, it's um, by um, Errol Morris, by the way, and it's called B-Sides. There we go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, those are a couple of sad notes. Um, uh, Elsa will definitely live on in the work that she has produced, and we hope that Central Camera will live on in... Uh, in a rebuild um, in a new location or in that location. Um, but we will, we shall see. Um, there will be plenty of retail space available for central camera to find. I, I will guarantee you that. Um, hey, Graham. Uh, yeah. Can I, can I add something on Elsa? Uh, Dorfman? Absolutely. Please do. 
Yeah, so El- Elsa Dorfman has been like a hero of mine since I was maybe 16 years old. I remember um, way back when we did not have Instagram or, you know, and I was learning photography, mostly self-taught through books. Uh, there was this website called photo.net. It's it's still around. It's not like the be-all and end-all of internet uh, forums, but it was back then. And, you know, we all had photos hosted on it. Anyway, the guy who ran photo.net was this guy, Philip Greenspun, and his profile picture was the first time I was uh, introduced to Elsa Dorfman. Um, this must have been 96 or 97, and it was a picture of him and his big white dog in Elsa Dorfman's studio shot on the 20 by 24 camera, which was basically, you know, reduced to a, a small thumbnail and... You know, that that got me interested and um, got me interested in her and her work and ultimately into 20 by 24 Polaroids, which has a lot to do with what I'm working on now. Um, yeah. And I, I was, by the I was way, really. You need to name the big 20 by 24, the Elsa. Well, well, OK, so um, I was thinking about this and, and here is what I wrote uh, last night in my notebook. <clears throat> I read that Elsa Dorfman died yesterday. That was sad. The internet said it was kidney failure. She was in her 80s. I've always been a big fan of her works ever since I saw a portrait that she took of Philip Greenspun on photo.net that he had as his profile picture in the late 90s. Her work with the 20 by 24 Polaroid really inspired me. I loved her portraits and outlandish medium. I always kind of thought that we would have a chance to meet one day. I kind of took it for granted, and now I regret not taking a trip and knocking on her door. Even having a portrait taken by her in the mid-2000s when I could have had it done for a few hundred bucks. I think Jim Stone, who I just met before the COVID-19 lockdown, knew her back in Massachusetts. I'll have to ask him some more. I'm sad that I never made the opportunity to meet her. I would have. It would have been great. Um, sorry, changing the page. Um, maybe when I build my 20 by 24 camera, I'll call it the Elsa. I was going to call them the Sasquatch, but I think Elsa has a nice ring to it and would be a fitting tribute. In Judaism, when you name your children after the dead, it's so that their souls won't wander. I think it's probably a fitting tribute to one of my heroes. That's it. All right. Um, okay, so, um, let's, uh, let's, um, talk about, uh, people we'd like to mention other than, uh, than Elsa. Um, Graham, is there anybody that you would like to, uh, talk about, um, you know, say thanks to anybody who's been an influence on you? I uh, you are muted if you are your microphone is Sorry. Right there we go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Let's just start again. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like just a general thank you to the pinhole community in general. I think uh, it's a rather generous group of people who are more than happy to uh, provide tips or advice or share ideas. Um, uh, I think in design sometimes uh, we get exposed to a lot more. Uh, ego in our day-to-day, but uh, the pinhole community has been uh, quite refreshing in that regard. And in particular, um, uh, uh, the 
podcasters, so you guys, and as well as the 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 two with the Lensless podcast, have been great resources for somebody who uh, uh, diving in and not sure uh, which way's up. Yeah, uh, definitely um, uh, the 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 Salt Lord and Corey are. Uh, uh, are great members of our community. I, I fully agree, and I uh, I like the way that they have uh, definitely been a, a a central part of getting the the pinhole community out there. The further we can go down that fidelity curve, the better, in my book, of course. Ethan, do you have anybody to uh, to mention? Yeah, I just wanted to mention that um, if you haven't seen Asriel Knight's uh, YouTube channel, Asriel is another excellent photographic Canadian and a bit of a historian. Uh, he does a YouTube channel where he does a bunch of things. My favorite things that he does is um, sort of delve into the sociocultural and economic history of cameras and camera sales. So he'll like review a camera. I think the latest one I saw was a Nikon FE. Uh, but it's not just like him looking at this camera that I've seen a million times and already know how it works. Although I did learn a thing that I've broken 12 of them and never figured out. Um, but he'll dive into how the camera was marketed and sold and who bought it and where it sort of fit in society at the time. And I really love that. I don't think any other YouTube channel is doing that. And so if you haven't checked out the channel, um, check out Asriel Knight on YouTube. That's A-Z-R-I-E-L-K-N-I-G-H-T. And if that just came through, uh, I had a bunch. Of, I went to his uh, YouTube channel, and I, um, I have a link to it here. Um, and it just came out uh, uh, blaring. So, uh, Nick, uh, do you have anybody to shout out to? Uh, well, you know, my very favorite scientist uh, is Charles Darwin, so I'm shouting out to him. Okay. <laughs> Any specific reason why Charles Darwin uh, and why he's your favorite scientist? Because we're going to get the president we deserve. Uh, no, no, no. No, I, I'm not going to. It's way too long of a topic to get into. Uh, but but I've been reading his stuff uh, for a long, long time, and I find it more and more relevant. I mean, it's not just that he defined the heart of biology. He also was an amazing explorer and the way he went about his research is, is very inspiring. His writing is wonderful. He's, he's just sort of the ideal scientist in my mind. And also the topic, uh, life and how it came to be is my most, that's my deepest interest. Uh, maybe that's why I didn't pursue it as a career because it's almost too important, um, to make mundane. You know, there's something to connect with this photography is just, uh, with Darwin, he was a careful observer. Um, mm -hmm. He saw patterns and made connections. Yes, and a careful <clears throat> observation. And I'm I'm really obsessed these days with the concept of natural history, and I think that the way of understanding the way things are in terms of a history of events, one thing following another, I think that's a very important thing, and it's now starting to seep even into physics, where for so long they wanted to uh, define the world as a set of laws from above. Uh, now people are starting to understand how contingent everything is and how the things that happened before turn out to be maybe maybe more important than some sort of law from above. And that's a, an idea very close to my heart. Um, and it, <clears throat> there's also this sense of infinite variety, um, 
one in the, in that in photography there is that idea that you really can't ever take the same picture twice um if you you know if you really look at it uh, in detail anyway okay and uh with with that kind of um uh a shout out i think i'm going to just say uh i'm going to shout out to everyone who answers other people's questions with the idea that you are helping somebody by answering a question um any anything anything at all any subject if somebody asks you a question answer it with the idea that you are helping them understand something and uh and i appreciate that i appreciate everybody who's done that for me in the past um the last thing that we want to do is thank robbie cribs for uh you know uh, creating and allowing us to use the music that we use on this show every episode thanks robbie thanks, thanks robbie. robbie 